Genesis 35, where I want you to notice again with me, verse 8 of the text, which in some ways is just as mysterious as it is revealing. It says, But Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak, and the name of it was called Alan Bacchus. Now, of course, the mysterious part of this text is that this servant Deborah, the very fact that she even mentioned at all, as Rebecca's nurse, she was unnamed way back in Genesis 24 when she came with young Rebecca to become Jacob's wife. That makes her a very, very aged woman at the time of our text, at least 145 years of age. You know, not one time in the book of Genesis is any nurse, or any servant for that matter, provided a death notice. Not even Rebecca herself even though Rachel is thus honored down in verse 19. So here you have this unsung hero of a woman, a witness to so many narratives in the Word of God. In fact, she was probably, if you think about it, the only person who witnessed the birth of Jacob and Esau and could testify as to which child was born first. Remember that it was God who took Rebekah and told her, that the older would serve the younger, a monumental detail in the plan of God. Beyond all of the decades and decades of firsthand eyewitness experience of God's dealings with Jacob, with Abraham, with Isaac, the ones that we don't know, the many details. One thing, one thing we do know about this woman, Deborah, and that is that she had endeared herself to Jacob and his family. And the reason we know that is because of a tree. Verse 8 again, But Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak. And the name of it was called Alan Bacchus. The Hebrew word Alan Bacchus simply means the oak of weeping. In other words, from the man whose name was changed, from, changed to Isaac in verse 10, there were tears. There was a heartbreak. And those tears were shed for this woman from Mesopotamia. He brought his late wife's nurse with him all the way from Padanaram and before and there into the land of Canaan. Deborah was buried in the promised land in a valley beneath Bethel. And because she was loved and embraced, Jacob honored her with a burial and called it the Oak of Weeping. It's a strange text. It's a mysterious text about an aged woman and a tree. But it is also a very powerful reminder of all of the trees in the Word of God, including, you'll notice, in verse 4. They gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. Two trees, two illustrations. Two reminders of what God is doing in our lives today. You know, there's not one word in the Bible that's here by accident. And I hope you'll open your heart to what God has for you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I just pray that we will hear it and heed it today. We need the whole counsel of God. We need your word to fall upon ears that are open to what the Spirit has to say. And we want to open them now. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to spend too much time this morning talking about the importance and the prominence of trees in the Word of God. Although I am 
tempted to because it fascinates me. It dominates the Word of God. And of course, also because I love trees. You know, with the exception of God and people, the Bible mentions trees more than any other living thing. In fact, one-third of all of the sentences in the first three chapters of the Bible contain a tree. Genesis 2.9 says, Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and that is good for food. So that you know this. You know that one of the great revelations in Scripture, one of the great elements of God's entire plan of redemption is in the rest of that verse where it says, the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Think about that. Genesis, creation and redemption, begins with the tree of life and it ends in Revelation with the very same tree of life. And yes... In between those two trees, you have in the Bible the entire story of God's plan told in the context of even more and more trees. The oak of weeping is a tree. It is a tree that all of us in this room can identify with because tears are common to us all. Five trees I want us to notice in the Bible. The first one you'll notice is the tree of hiding. Verse 4, you'll notice the last line says that Jacob hid what those idols that his household had. He hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. Now folks, I don't know about you, but Jacob's hiding these idols under a tree. Remind me of what Adam himself did and tried to do back all the way back in the book of Genesis. You'll notice on your screen Genesis chapter 3 and these familiar words in verse 7. The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made them aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Where did they hide themselves? Amongst the trees of the garden. In other words, first Adam tried to hide himself with the leaves of a tree, And when that wasn't enough, he tried to hide behind a tree itself. And when that wasn't enough, he tried to hide amongst the trees, the entire forest. And why did he do that? I can tell you why. Basically because of another another tree, and that's the tree that Adam tried to steal. Look on your screen at chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. You see the words? You notice the words up there, good and evil? This is the first time that good and evil are mentioned in all of Scripture, but it will not be the last. And of course, anybody in this room who's honest and has two eyes in their head can see that there's good and there's evil in this world. Even religion can be evil because its founders are evil. Not surprisingly... Man chose in the garden to know and experience that which is evil and sin. And it led him again to hide. To hide, the Bible says, amongst all of the trees. And why? You see the word in our text in Genesis 35, the word strange in verse 2, the word strange in verse 4. You know, Adam's intimacy with God was changed to becoming a stranger with God. Strangers is not a 
positive words. It's a pejorative. Strangers, as we all know and tell our kids, are sketch. That's why, here's a pro tip for you, massaging the shoulders of the stranger in front of you in the line at McDonald's causes them to make up their mind faster. So you might want to try that sometime. (laughs) From intimate to stranger. Why? What is the reason that Adam, who before, by the way, used to walk with God in those very same trees, He walked with God intimately in the midst of those same trees in the cool of the day, and now he's hiding from God behind a tree. It's very simple. Adam said, I heard thy voice, and I was afraid. When sinners hear the voice of God and the word of God, their first reaction, their first natural reaction to that voice is fear. They want to hide. And the reason they want to hide is guilt. You know, guilt's an interesting thing. My brother was down a couple weeks ago, and we were talking, and he asked me if I remembered Billy Cunningham. You know, when I was a little boy, fourth, fifth grade, I used to ride my bicycle, my Schwinn Stingray bicycle, to school every morning. Same sidewalk, same road. And one morning while riding to school, I noticed a sign in a yard that said frozen Kool-Aid after school, 15 cents. And Rick asked me if I remembered that. I said, oh yeah. It's hot riding a bike in Florida to school, and so I thought, that's great. I was glad to see that. And sure enough, every day on the way home, there's this little girl, her brother Billy Cunningham was in my class, selling 15-cent Kool-Aid, little Dixie cups, frozen Kool-Aid. One day, my usual trek. I stopped for my usual Kool-Aid. You would ride a bike in one hand and, and I enjoy that thing all the way home. It was awesome. And so I said to the little girl, hey, Carly, how about today? Just for me, today is free. Girls love poetry, right? She said, Jimmy, take a hike on your bike. So <laughs> I didn't have enough money. That's why I asked. I had a dime. I only had a dime. And in my fourth grade mind, I had been her biggest profit maker for weeks and weeks. So what's one cup with a discount? I walked up to her little money jar and I plopped in the dime and pretended that it was the full 15 cents. And I got on my bike and I rode off with the thief that I was. Kool-Aid in my hand. What's amazing to me, I'm 11 years old, is I didn't sleep very well that night. I'm not a Christian. Five measly cents pricked my conscience. On Tuesday, without ever hearing about this going on, the governor of the state of Florida, Governor Claude Kirk, who built our turnpike, (laughs) he showed up at that girl's house, Billy's house, with an entourage. Media, onlookers, this was an event. And the reason was Brevard County apparently had shut them down, sent them a letter, cease and desist, you don't have a license for this Kool-Aid stand, and so forth. And so Governor Kirk got wind of it, actually got a letter from the little girl and the little boy, and he said, oh, this is a great photo op. So he goes down there, Kool-Aid stand, he makes this big uh, production, you can Google it and see it online, and he, he basically declares it open and legal, champion of the little man. I didn't know all this. So I'm riding on my bicycle after school and I, I see some of these people and I said, what's with all the troopers and all the cars? And someone said, something to do with Billy and his Kool-Aid. And I thought, oh, they're on to me. She's a snitch. 
snitches get stitches. And for five cents. So I turned my bike around and I rode off the opposite direction as fast as possible. Do you know that for days, for days, I rode a different way to and back from school. I mean, I didn't, I, the scene of the crime, I didn't want anywhere near the scene of the crime. It, it, guilt didn't just make me afraid, it made me ashamed, ashamed. Proverbs 28, one says, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. Adam was hiding behind a tree. Jacob tried to hide these idols under a tree. And it is a great reminder of the first great truth of the Bible that you must know and must understand. Man is fallen. We are sinners. And that sin, that original sin, has broken fellowship with God. It makes us guilty before a holy God and unfit, therefore, for His holy presence. In fact, one of the fundamental tenets in philosophy, of philosophy in modern psychology, is that mankind is plagued with guilt. It is that no matter where you go in the world, throughout all of the history of the world, guilt is a pathology of the mind. It's the problem, man's basic problem. In psychologist Sigmund Freud, for example, he reasoned that, that the guilt was, was a result of parental standards. It was mom's fault because she has rules, so all you have to do to get rid of the guilt is get rid of the rules. Just throw out all the standards, the moralities. It's just another way of hiding amongst the trees and bearing it like the telltale heart. The problem is when you simply hide from God, you're hiding from the very one, the only one who redeems the heart. And such was Adam, behind a tree and amongst the trees. That's number one. The second thing I want you to notice, number two, is Nathaniel, who's under a tree. I want you to look on your screen. John chapter 1 and verse 48 says this, Nathaniel said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. In other words, follow this, Nathaniel obviously thought he was all alone under that tree. We don't know what he was doing, praying, meditating. Reading, whatever it was from another place altogether, Jesus said, I saw you. I saw you, Nathaniel, under that tree. And here was Nathaniel's immediate response, verse 49. Nathaniel answered and said, and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou, thou shalt see greater things than these. In other words, note this. Adam behind a tree reminds us of man's sin. His guilt. His inability to fellowship with a holy God. Nathaniel under the tree reminds us of the Son of God. The Savior. And the answer to man's sin. The answer for redeeming man's heart. On your screen again, the same chapter says this in verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus cometh un coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, here it is, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now folks, understand this. This is John chapter 1 that you're looking at. 
This is the very, very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Nobody really knows exactly who Jesus is. Here's what Philip does. You'll notice on your screen. Then Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him. We found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The word found in verse 45, we have found him. You know, that's the Greek word eurekos. You may remember it was popularized by Archimedes in 287 B.C., king heir of Syracuse, suspected that his goldsmith had substituted silver in his, in his gold crown. So he asked Archimedes if he could find out a way to determine whether or not that was done without damaging the crown. So Archimedes is thinking about it and thinking about it. And one day after racking his brain, he notices that when you put something in water that's full to the brim, a container, it overflows. And Archimedes says, I think I know what to do. I can handle the crown this way. If it's pure gold, I'll put it in a bowl of water until it's filled to the brim and then take the crown out and then put in a piece, a weight of pure gold equal to the crown and if the crown is pure it should come to the same level he had found the answer and you remember he went through the city yelling eureka eureka and every inventor since has had a eureka moment philip says nathaniel eureka we found him but you know what in point in fact philip was wrong. Philip didn't find Jesus. Jesus already saw Nathanael under that tree, and Eureka, Jesus found them. Here's what it says in verse 43. Look at this. The day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and said unto him, Follow me. Who found whom? Is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart right now about salvation? That you're lost? Jesus is finding you. John said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You take away the sin. You take away the guilt. The question is, how in the world is he going to do that? How is a lamb going to bring Adam out from behind a tree? Well, we're getting there. We're getting there in the plan of God, but first we have to consider a third tree in the Bible. We see Adam behind a tree. We see Nathaniel under the tree. Thirdly, we see Zacchaeus up the tree. Very familiar text, Luke chapter 19. I want you to notice on your screen, verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before foot race and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was yet, he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at the house. Now, wait a minute. You can imagine this scene, right? Zacchaeus is a businessman. He's running like a child. He's climbing a tree like a child. And all of a sudden, God in flesh stops. Think of that. Jesus stops, and he looks up, and he knows his name. He calls him by name. How does he know my name? 
The Bible says Zacchaeus didn't know who he was. Zacchaeus, get down from the tree. You know, very soon Jesus would be criticized for this because Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a collaborator with the Romans and most of these publicans got rich by extortion, by fraud. In fact, so did Zacchaeus because after he gets saved, he says, I'm going to restore what I've stolen and, and what I lied about. You'll notice up there, verse 7, and when they saw it, they all murmured. Of course they did. They gossiped, they murmured, saying that he was gone to be the guest with a man who's a sinner. They said that he was a guest with a man that was a sinner. Beloved, everybody's a sinner. Which is exactly why Jesus said what he said in verses 9 and 10. You'll see it up there. And Jesus said unto him, this day is salvation come to this house. For so much as he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. In other words, it's not just that Zacchaeus was a sinner. It is that Zacchaeus knew that he was a sinner. He confessed that he was a sinner. Maybe you don't think you are. I mean, oftentimes I'll talk to someone and I'll say, you know, the Bible says we're all sinners. Well, no, 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 Pastor, I'm not a sinner. People are easily fooled. And fool themselves all the time. Remember the time Louise said to me, she said, I got home and I'd been out in the morning and I came back and she said, Jim, if you'll pour the juice and make some toast, breakfast will be all ready. I said, sure, I'll do that. What's for breakfast? She said, juice and toast. (laughs) So she fooled me. (laughs) You know, when it comes to sin, we're often fooled and willingly so. Zacchaeus was willing to climb a tree precisely because he recognized that he needed a Savior. That he, in fact, was a sinner. Some years ago, I was at my brother-in-law's house up in Federal, North Carolina. Our whole family was there. He was on staff at Berean Baptist Church there, Baptist Temple, I think, in Federal. And that church was just a very few miles from the little church that I had gotten saved in as a 12-year-old bus kid. So one afternoon, I said, I'm going to take the time and go back. I hadn't been there for decades. I wanted to see the old church, and I just wanted to look around. It was amazing how much smaller it looked to me from when I was a little boy. And as I drove past the building that I hadn't seen since 1973, I saw something that I couldn't believe was there. I pulled in, I got out, and there was the very same bus that I rode to church when I very first heard the gospel. I got out of the car, had a camera, I took a picture of it. I still have that picture in my office today. And in those days, it's just the bus, no selfies in those days. You say, preacher, it's just a bus. Just an old, rusty, yellow bus. Yep. But it was my sycamore tree. It was the thing that God used to show me that I was lost. And that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, was my Savior. And you know, folks, I wonder if Zacchaeus didn't walk past that old sycamore tree in years ahead, maybe the rest of his life, and smile. And thinking to himself, that's where it all started. This could be the place where it all starts for you. If you're not sure that you're saved. Adam behind a tree, Nathaniel under the tree, Zacchaeus up the tree. Number four, I want you to notice there's also Jesus on the tree. 
We're all familiar with Luke chapter 23. But I want you to see these words. Verse 31 says, For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. You know, the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead, dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. George MacLeod of Scotland once wrote these words. I read them years ago and wrote them down. <clears throat> he said, The Lord Jesus wasn't crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a tree between two thieves. There in the city's garbage heap, on a crossroad, so cosmopolitan, they had to write his title in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. There at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. That is where he died. And that is what he died for. The Son of God on a tree. On the tree. A moment ago, I quoted 1 Peter 2.24. Do you know what it says in the verses before that very familiar verse? It says this, Christ who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. In other words, Jesus himself became our oak of weeping. Hanging on a piece of wood that he himself created. Goes all the way back to the garden. Here in Genesis 35, you may have noticed how much pain and sorrow is in this one chapter. You see verse 1, running from Esau. So much pathos and sorrow in that one reality, running away from Esau. Verse 2, Jacob says it's the word distress. In verse 5, there's the fear of attack as he travels. In verse 8, Deborah's death. Rachel dies in childbirth. Same chapter in verse 18. The wicked violation of verse 22, and of course Isaac dies in verse 28. This entire chapter is an oak of weeping. That's why trees, as beautiful as they are, they still remind us of the fall. I mean, down here, this time of year, it reminds me of the fall because of one thing, pollen. Our little paths with pavers, we call them the yellow brick road, amen? I mean, they're from trees. If you've ever seen pollen under a microscope, you know it looks like little medieval torture devices, little tiny spiked balls, flail, that go right in your eyeballs, amen? Creation is marred by sin. Paul said, it groaneth and travaileth together until now, but creation has a redeemer. Spotless Lamb of God, the innocent one, the very one who made the trees with his word is the one who came 
leaving the ivory palaces to be crucified in the very wood that he created. Adam behind a tree and Nathaniel under the tree and Zacchaeus up the tree and Jesus on the tree. And then finally, there is the last mention of a tree in the Bible. It's written in the last chapters, the last verses, the last book of the Word of God when all of the judgments are over. Look at it with me. It's Revelation 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of crystal water, the water of life, clean as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Christian, can I remind you how the redemptive plan of God ends for you? It ends with eternity where it began. And therefore it doesn't end. It goes on and on with the tree of life. And this time, because of what our Lord Jesus did, nobody is going to ever hide from God anymore. For those in this room who are still hiding from God, you would be afraid of the voice of God. Maybe you're watching and you're hiding. Let me encourage you to come out from the trees and look to the cross. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior and Redeemer, and realize why in the last book of the Bible in eternity, he still called the Lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin. And one day, as you read in this same chapter, he'll take away the weeping. No oak of weeping then and there. I don't know what your need is today. But I know in a group this size, with all of the needs here, that God has spoken to every heart or would, if you would listen. If you're burdened because of the tears. I mean, look at this chapter. This was God's servant, Jacob, changed to Israel, part of his plan of redemption. Look at this one chapter and the heartache and the tears and the suffering and the despair and the distress. It's all there because of this broken world. But God saw the tears. He always sees the tears, and God has the answer. If you're not sure about your salvation, today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation for you. Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed for just a moment with no one looking. I mentioned a moment ago, I don't know of every need. I don't even know of a percentage of the needs of, this heart, of hearts in this room. But I also know that God knows them fully, completely. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Blay, like I'm saved, I'm born again. Jesus is my Savior. I once was lost, but now I'm found. But as a Christian, as a child of the living God, I needed this reminder or these reminders today. Whatever they might be. The one thing I was encouraged about with Deborah a few weeks ago in reading this was that God called her name out in his word. He didn't do that with anybody else, but he does that once in a while so that we know he knows every name of every person, of every servant, of every nurse, of every child of his. And in our long life, dying because of that, that rough journey, God knew it all. And God knows you. 
Pastor Blalock, I'm saved today, but I needed this message today. God has spoken to my heart as a Christian. Who would say that? Would you lift your hands with heads bowed and, and testify to the Lord and amen? Yes, praise the Lord. Also, in a group this size, there will be folks who do not know Christ as Savior. And it doesn't matter to me if you were born and raised in this church or any other church, baptized, sanitized, all of it. Doesn't matter. You need you must be born again. And if there's somebody here today who's never been truly born again saved, this would be the day. It really would. That's me, Pastor Blaylock. I'm not sure, and I'm not going to come and embarrass you. I'm not going to talk to you um, from here, but I would pray for you. Pastor Blaylock, I'm not sure that I'm saved. Would you pray for me that I could be sure? Anybody like that? Would you lift your hand really high till we see it? All right. Anybody else? God bless you, young man. Yes. At home, where you are, watching now, today is, today is the day of salvation for you. Father in heaven, bless the invitation. Lord, thank you for your word. And I thank you, God, that you have shown us in your word through multitudes of illustrations, reminders constantly over and again that you are Lord and creator, that you have always had a plan of redemption, that your son was the lamb slain even before the foundation of the world, that your very creation testifies of this great plan. And I pray as your people, Lord, we will recognize it and embrace it, even sometimes, even sometimes through, through tears and heartache and the oak of weeping, knowing full well, without question, that the oak of weeping one day will be gone. Help us to trust you to that end. For those who are not saved, not sure that they're saved, convict their hearts, please, today. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.